Good morning, Bethel. As we come to God's word here together, let's bow our heads and our hearts before God. Gracious God, this day, at this moment, we desire to hear from you. We desire to hear from you. We desire and long to meet with you. We're coming to your word with expectant hearts. Speak, Lord. Your servants, we are listening. Help us. Give us faith. Holy Spirit, move upon our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Grab your Bibles out from your homes right now and uh, turn with me to the book of Joshua. And we're going to be in chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. Today is an incredible day, a, a day that surely felt like it would never arrive. This has been counted down to and waited for, anticipated for centuries. The moment we are about to walk ourselves into. Chapter 11 is this breathtaking chapter. As we see the, the weight, the anticipation, the eager longing that's gone on for generation after generation after generation, the countdown finally fulfilled before our very eyes. I've titled today's message, God Did It. God Did It. Friends, that's what we are celebrating here today. In, in our home, we have, maybe some of you do as well, the, these little Google voice-activated devices. You, you know the ones I'm talking about where, where you can say, you know, hey, Google, what's the weather today? You know, hey, Google, I need an alarm tomorrow for 7 a.m. Hey, hey, Google, what time's the game on? And you can ask them just about anything and everything. Well, going back to, like, at least Christmas, one of our daughters has has daily gone to Google and asked, hey, Google, how many days until my birthday? And, and it started at, you know, 90-something, and then it was the next day, 83, and then 54, and then on and on it's gone down. And every single day, she goes to Google and says, hey, Google, how many days until my birthday? And then she rushes into the room and is like, daddy, daddy, guess what? It's only 54 more days. Daddy, daddy, guess what? It's only 27 more days. Daddy, daddy. And we are coming this week down to single digits. And she is ecstatic. Over the moon as she has been counting down and anticipating the big day. Our text today is the culmination of a countdown that doesn't just go back to Christmas but has been counting down for almost 450 years. 450 years of, of anticipation and counting down. And finally, this promised land that God promised way back with Abram, with Abraham, is now coming to the people. This incredible moment. And I, I want to walk us through this chapter, through this passage, and do, do a high-level survey, overview of it, so that we get ourselves situated. And then we're going to zero in on three particular 
points of reflection and response. So we're going to do a high-level overview of this chapter, get a glimpse, a lay of the land, and then we're going to zero in and we're going to pick up on three points where we need to take some time to reflect together today and then respond to God's Word. So that's where we are headed today. Chapter 11 begins with an introduction to another one of these pagan kings that are, are leading different parts of the land, a wicked King in a wicked land, actually in the northern section of this land, he is the leading king of all of these wicked pagan kings, and his name is Jabin. Verse 1 says, when Jabin, king of Hazar, heard this, he sent word to Joab, king of Madon, and to the kings of Shimron and Akshvath. And there, there is this going to be this really long list that we're going to get into. We'll, we'll see that in just a minute of all these different kings. But before we go there, you notice that it said that Jabin heard of this. Now, what is it that he's talking about? Well, what it's specifically referring to is back to chapter 10. Back to this, this incredible battle that Joshua had, this, this incredible day of victory when, do you remember? Do you remember when God literally put his finger on the earth and made it stop spinning and held the sun in place for an entire day and rained down laser-guided hailstones and overcame those five mighty kings of the south and then led Joshua through to take over all that land in the south when God was fighting for Joshua? So, so when the king of Hazor heard about all of that, he's like, we got to get all of us together in the north, every single king from everywhere around in the northern region, we've got to unite together. And so we see there in verse 1, he sent word to Jobab. He sent word to the kings of Shimron and Akshvath. And then it goes on to the northern kings, the kings of the Arabah, which is in the desert, the kings of the south, the kings of the foothills, the kings in the east, the kings in the west, every single one that he can possibly find. And it says in verse 4, they came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. And all these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merim to fight against Israel. If you thought those five mighty kings from the south that came together to attack Gibeon and the Israelites, and that was like the biggest fear you could ever imagine, if you thought that was a big deal, that's nothing compared to what now Joshua and the Israelites are facing here. My count is at least, at least 14 different kings, maybe more, with all of their chariots and all of their horses and all of their soldiers and all of their mighty armies and even, you know, everything that comes with them. They mount up and converge upon this one valley of Merim where there's this, this watershed and all the water runs into. There's so many armies that it's as far as the eye can see as soldiers. So many armies that, that, that it's more than all the sand and all the seashores of the earth. Bent on the destruction of Joshua and the Israelites. Set out to destroy them. Except even though they've got all these chariots and all these soldiers and all these swords and all these armies, who do they not have? Who are they lacking on their side that Joshua and the Israelites have? 
the Lord. Verse 6, the Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them over to Israel, slain. The, the sweet, common refrain that we have heard over and over and over in this book of Joshua don't fear, Joshua. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Don't be dismayed. Why? Because the Lord is with you. God says to Joshua, I am with you, so do not fear. These, these mighty armies are nothing. I am with you. And so Joshua, verse 7, and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Merom and attacked them. I love that. Once again, just like we noted last week, once again here we see that God tells Joshua something and immediately, he's like at the crack of dawn, immediately, all right, Lord, you said I'm with you and you told me to go, so what am I going to do? All right, it's go time now. No hesitating, no holding back. No trying to wrestle through whether he really heard God's voice right. God, you're leading, you're guiding, and I'm going. Verse 8, the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to the greater Sidon, to Merishoth of Ma'am, to the valley of Mizpah on the east until no survivors were left. This massive army that was as vast as the seashore is now smashed and scattered everywhere by the mighty hand of the Lord. And really the remainder of this chapter outlines all the different spots that Joshua and his armies go to attack and take out these pagan, wicked, vile kings and their armies and, and to and to receive the inheritance that God has for them across the region of the north of this land. Verse 12, Joshua took all these royal cities and their kings and put them to the sword. He totally destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Verse 16 continues, Joshua took this entire land, the hill country, all the Negev, the whole region of Goshen, the western foothills, the Arabah, and the mountains of Israel with their foothills. The Israel's, Israelites sweep through the entire region, the northern part of this land, and God gives them victory in a landslide. These wicked, vile, pagan kings and these wicked, vile, pagan people are unresolved in their hatred to the Lord, unresolved in their, their wicked practices saying, no, I will not bend my knee to you, the Lord. I want my way, says verse 19, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. Not one of these people turned to God. Not one of these people or nations relented or said they'd be willing to follow the Lord. They all said, no, we reject the Lord. We reject his ways. We turn our backs against you and we will go our own way. We want our stubborn wickedness, not the good life of the Lord. And the more God did, the more he moved in power, the more it hardened their hearts. That's what we see in verse 20. It tells us as God moved and showed his glory, it made the people's hearts, their, their arid, dry heart, just calcify more and more and more until it turned into utterly rock-solid granite. It reminds me of that old saying that I've shared more than a few times with us, 
The same sun melts the ice and hardens the clay. The same sun melts the ice and hardens the clay. In this case, as God moved and showed his glory, it was as if the sun was solidifying their hearts harder and harder and harder in rejection to him. And so verse 23, Joshua, he took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. The long-awaited generation was here. The long-awaited time had come. The countdown has come to an end. The day is here and God has done it. The feeling of such, I can't even imagine joy and relief and wonder and awe and amazement. It must have been surreal. Google, how many times until my birthday? It's today. It's today. In, in this time where, you know, more than a few folks ha have been waiting and waiting for a surgery that, that you're just in so much pain for. And it's like, man, it just can't come soon enough. And you get the date booked and then it gets bumped and you get another date booked and then it gets bumped again and you get the date booked. And then finally, finally, after all of this waiting of weeks and months and maybe even over a year waiting for this, you finally get to the day and it's like, oh, we're here. Finally, I get to see the surgeon and get this relief. For Leafs fans, you know, the anticipation of will, will this year finally be the year after waiting since 67 to finally get that day and you just imagine you just imagine if you're a Leafs fan that day when the cup finally returns to Toronto when finally the the parade marches down Spadina and if you could be standing there in the midst of the the throng seeing the cup get carried by on those cars or those buses all oh, the feeling ah oh, it's finally come 450 years of waiting, it's finally here before us. Oh, the moment, God has done it. God has done it. And what a moment it is. And within this chapter, if we now focus back in, we've got a bit of a sense of the lay of the land of what's happening here in chapter 11. I wanna zero us in and really take some time to reflect and be driven to the response from three different things that jump out of this chapter. The first one is this. God will use every part of our journey in purposeful preparation. God will use every part of our journey in purposeful preparation. Those first five verses, as this chapter opens up, when when though the, the wicked king of Hazor hears about Joshua and all of his men, and, and he calls on everybody from the east and the west, the north and the south, and every single person that he can rally up together with all of their chariots and all of their soldiers and all of their horses, and, and the army is so big that it's bigger than, than all the, the sand on all the seashore. As far as the eye can see, there are soldiers everywhere. When all of them rally up together to face off against Joshua and to crush the Israelites, these giants who have ruled the land, these kings who, who are mighty and strong warriors, when all of them come against 
Joshua. And when all of them come against the Israelites, how is it that in that moment, Joshua is filled with so much faith that he's just immediately like, all right, we'll go. And he doesn't even let them come to him. The whole Israelite army goes and suddenly attacks them. How is it that they do not buckle under the pressure? How is it that they're not overcome with anxiety? How is it that they are not frozen in fear? We need to take note of this, friends. God will use every part of your journey in purposeful preparation. Notice. This situation that we find ourselves at today is not where the Israelites started, right? This is not the beginning of their journey into the land. It started with the impossible raging Jordan River. There's no way across. And then God does the impossible and stops it in its track so they can walk across on dry ground. Then they get to the the mighty giant walls of Jericho. What on earth are we going to do? And then God does the impossible to bring the walls come crumbling down. One of their own sins and brings poison into the land, utter heartbreak and wondering, what are we possibly going to do? But God brings cleansing upon his people. God then leads his people into another victory over the mighty city of Ai. God then leads them into an an even greater um, sense of victory as he gives the, the, the royal city of Gibeon into their hands. And then now it's not one king, but now it's actually five kings that come. And what does God do? God stops the earth in its track, stops the sun from moving, and brings giant heat-seeking hail size, uh, bowling ball-sized hailstones down to fight for his people. This is the track that Joshua and the Israelites have walked that now brings them to Joshua chapter 11. And do not miss this. God will use every part of our journeys in purposeful preparation for the moment that he has next. Every single part. Every single part. There are some things in our journeys that are wonderful, high, exciting celebration moments, right? I mean, Joshua and the Israelites had those for sure. But there are also those hard times, those failures, those stumbles and fumbles and sin and struggle. And God uses every part to prepare us for his purposes. Not just the good and the great, but even those hard and those challenges. God uses all of it. God used all of it to prepare his people for this very moment. Let me introduce you to a man named Glenn Cunningham. Picture will be here on the screen. Glenn, in 1917, as a young boy, he grew up in rural Kansas. 1917, as a seven-year-old boy, he was at school, and he had the particular chore amongst his schoolmates every day in class to be the one to get the fire going at the start of the day so that the classroom would stay warm, this old schoolhouse. One day, Glenn is going about his routine. Unbeknownst to him, someone had mistakenly filled the the canister that he uses to start the fire with gasoline instead of kerosene. He goes about his practice, gets the fire all ready, and then he lights the match, and the gas explodes in a giant fireball right in his face. 
A seven-year-old boy is burned so badly, especially upon his legs, that they are just marred. He, he, he's rushed to the doctors, and the doctors tell him and his mom, the burns are so bad, we need to amputate both legs. His mom refused to allow Glenn to have his legs amputated, insisted to be left, but they were so mangled and marred that it was almost a, 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 a done deal that he'd never walk again. But Glenn would have none of it. Glenn, every day, would drag himself outside into the yard of his little Kansas home and pull himself up on the fence that surrounded their yard and holding on to the fence in his yard would force himself with those mangled legs to begin to walk. And he didn't stop at just walking, no. No, walking turned into running to the point where, in 1936, the boy who was told your legs are too far gone for you to even be able to keep them landed himself in the Olympics, running the mile at the Olympics in 1936 to a silver medal, coming just oh so short, just a couple seconds short of being the very first person to ever run and break the four minute mile. Question for you, do you think Glenn would have accomplished all of that, would have been driven to the degree that he was to run like that, even to the point of getting to the Olympics and almost being the first to break the mile mark? If he didn't have that accident, if he didn't go through that hardship, I mean, we never really know. You can't know for certain. But I can't help but believe that one of the key driving things that brought him to that moment was the utter tragedy of that fire on his legs. The reason at this moment where we find ourselves with Joshua and the Israelites unwavering and unflinching and running headlong towards the gates of hell with squirt guns, not the least of which worried about it, not the least which hesitant, is because they have seen all that God has done up to this point. They have seen God show up over and over and over again. They've seen him move mightily in their midst, and they know now we can step out and trust him. Friends, this is a word. This is a word for us today. God will use every part of our journey in his purposeful preparation for you and for the people around you to, to see God move in your life and to see God move in other people's lives. He wants to use the journey you've been on, the journey that you are walking through, all of it. The path that you are walking right now in life, none of it, none of it is a coincidence. All that you have walked through, none of it is a mistake. None of it is outside of the purposeful plan and workings of God. How quickly we can be prone to want to hide. How quickly we can be prone to want to put our hands up in privacy. How quickly we can, we can feel like we need to put on the facade and the face to be like, we've got it all together. Yeah, I'm good. To not really let anybody in to what's actually going on in our journey. 
the highs, the celebrations, but maybe even more difficult by far is those challenges and the lows. We need to see, we need to hear today, friends, that God is working in all times. Yeah, in the good times, but also in those hard times. And God wants to use not only the good times, but the hard times. When we put up the facade, when we put up the face, when we pretend like we're all together, when we hold our hands out and don't let anybody in, guess what? We are robbing not only ourselves, but also those around us of getting to be prepared for the journey that God would have ahead of us. To be prepared and ready for the next step of faith that God would be leading us into. And so let me ask, are you coming with open hands before God with all that your journey has and saying, God, I use this, use me, however, the good, the bad, the ugly, the wonderful celebrations and the challenges and struggles and failings, however you want, God, For your purpose, God, I trust you. Are you bringing others into your life to really authentically know? Like what's going on in your life? So that that they might be encouraged by the way that God is working in your life. So that you might be encouraged by the way that God is working in their lives. To be prepared for the journey that God has ahead. Here's a second reflection that comes out of this text. It's a question, actually, for all of us. Have I left anything undone that the Lord has commanded? We are prompted, friends, today from this scripture to ask this question. Have I left anything undone that the Lord has commanded? As we consider chapter 11 of Joshua, one of the most outstanding things we see in this text is the display of obedience that is before us. Joshua builds up this mountain of obedience with the peak of it, the pinnacle of this mountain of obedience being verse 15. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, we read, so Moses commanded Joshua and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. Joshua does exactly what God tells him to do. Joshua does everything that God tells him to do. He goes where God tells him to go. He takes out the armies and the cities at the time in the way that God tells him to do it. He holds back and and refrains in the way that God tells him to. He has left nothing undone of all the Lord commanded, we read there. He obeyed God completely. His obedience is at the heart of why Israel is victorious here. Don't miss this. His obedience is at the heart of why Israel is victorious here. The flip is also true, right? The disobedience of Moses, the disobedience of the people, the generation before, was at the heart of why they weren't experiencing this moment. Because they disobeyed God, they missed out on this moment at this time. We cannot miss the onus of obedience in our faith, friends. We can't miss this. We need to hear this. We need to be pushed on this. Because see, in our circles, generally speaking, we have really come to emphasize 
the, the amazing grace of God, the amazing mercy of God, that there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing we can do to, to earn or to uh, merit our salvation. We have come to emphasize that hugely, and rightfully so. We, we come to verses, and we, we love this verse. We cling to this verse so tightly. For example, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's an amazing verse, right? It's an amazing, incredible truth that we need to cling to historically. This verse stands at the, the centerpiece of why the Protestant church began and separated itself from the Catholic church at the thing we now call the Reformation. This this unrelenting declaration that led to what we now have as our faith, saying that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We believe this. We absolutely believe this. But... We must not stop at just verse 9. Like, friends, look at the very next verse. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared for us to do. We are made and intended by God to do good, to do things that he tells us to do, to obey We are called to obey. Yes, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And yet we are called to, there is great onus within our faith and the scriptures throughout all the scriptures to obedience. Let me show you a few examples. Deuteronomy chapter 11. Love the Lord your God and keep his requirements, his decrees, his laws, his commands, always. 2 John 1.6, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. Jesus in Luke 11, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The Apostle Paul, the beginning of Romans, through Jesus Christ our Lord and for his name's sake, we receive grace, yep, and apostleship, yeah, to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. The obedience that comes from faith. John Piper has a great book, What Jesus Demands of the World. It's a, it's a fantastic read here, and it's a, a study of 50 of the demands, the commands that Jesus gives to you and to me, to us as disciples that we are called to obey the commands that we are given to not leave undone. It's a book that's it's worth careful reading and deep reflection upon for sure. But let me even, just at a cursory level here, let me read a couple of the entries from just even the table of contents to give us a flavor of what we see here. The commands that God gives to you and to me You must be born again. You must repent. You must believe in me, Jesus said. You must abide in me, Jesus said. Always pray and do not lose heart. 
Do not be angry. Trust God's providence. Love your enemies and pray for those who abuse you. Lay, yourself, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven by giving sacrificially and generously. Baptize disciples. Eat the Lord's Supper. Go and make disciples of all nations. These are just a couple of the entries that are here of the many, many commands that Jesus has given to you and to me. We see in Joshua a servant who is a picture for us of obedience in this chapter, who left nothing undone that God commanded. Friends, are there things that God has commanded you that you are leaving right now undone? Are there things that God has clearly commanded for you to do that you are leaving undone? Are there steps God is calling you to take that you are neglecting or avoiding right now? Are there things you are struggling with that you know God has said, don't, don't walk down that path, don't get yourself into that relationship, don't indulge in that behavior. Don't do it. You know it. The Spirit of God every single time is bringing deep conviction upon you, and yet you keep just trying to brush it under the rug, ignore his promptings, say, no, 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 I'm not going to listen. God's call is to obedience, brother. God's call is to obedience, sister. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. The end of Jesus' life, he says, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe, to obey everything I have commanded you. And so today, friends, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus for mercy and for his righteousness. Because if we put our faith in Christ, all those times where we have failed to, fall sh to, to measure up to the call, the commands of God, are forgiven. All, all the mistakes that we've made where we've failed to obey, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are united with him, forgiven for all the mistakes that we have done. And when God looks at us, he sees us united with Jesus, so all the good, perfect obedience of Jesus is counted towards us. Run to Jesus for mercy and grace, friends, today. Run to Jesus today for power and strength, friends. Run to Jesus today because if you are in Jesus, if you've given your life to Jesus, he's placed his Holy Spirit within you. He's placed his Holy Spirit within you to empower you and give you the strength not only to be united with him so that you are forgiven and there's no more shame or, or, or worry or guilt over your your lack of obedience, my lack of obedience, but now he's given us his, his spirit to empower us to obey, to live with obedience. Run to Jesus today. Each and every one of us is prompted as we consider this chapter from God's word. Is there anything that God has commanded that you have left undone? Friend, run to Jesus in obedience today. Final, closing response and reflection. It's this. God did it, and God will do it. God did it, 
And guess what? God will do it. Let me read one more time the final verse of this chapter. Beautiful. Verse 23. So Joshua took the entire land, all of it, just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to the tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. God did it. God did it. God fulfilled his promise, a promise that was made over 400 years earlier, almost 450 years earlier, and may have felt, I am sure at times, like, is this ever going to happen? It just feels like, man, God's forgotten us. God's turned his back upon us. Is God really going to still bring this about? There's no way. The circumstances seem too much. It seems too big. It seems too impossible. It, it, there could never be. It can't happen, could it? But God, hear this, never forgot his promise. God never veered off course. God was not taken aback by anything that had happened. Not even for a nanosecond was his promise ever in question. The same God who made that promise to Abraham and fulfilled that promise at this moment with Joshua by finally bringing his people into the promised land and fulfilling his promises has given you and I, as we sit in our homes with these books, an abounding list of promises for us too. And God did it then, and God is going to keep doing it now. We all walk through those moments, those seasons, those times, those challenges where we just wonder, man, is God really going to follow through on the promises he gave? I mean, I know it's there, but like, it just feels like it's been so long. It just feels like it's too hard. It just feels like it's too big. It just seems like it's impossible. I, I, I want to believe. I don't know if right now in your life you find yourself in one of those moments where it's like, man, I want to believe, but I just don't know. Maybe you've got somebody beside you right now that's walking closely in life with you, a friend, a family member, somebody under your own roof who's just like, man, I don't know. It just seems like there's no way that all these promises are really true. Like, just look around at what's going on right now. We're so caught up in the muck and the mire of right now. Or maybe it's not what you're in right now, but we all go through these seasons. And so many things are good right now, but there will come a day where we struggle, we wonder, we wrestle. Is God really going to be faithful to his promises? Is he really going to follow through? I, I just don't know. Today, this glorious scripture reminds us God keeps his promises, all of them. Today, this glorious scripture reminds us God is faithful always. Today, this glorious scripture reminds us God is working at all times. Today, this glorious scripture that is in front of us reminds us that God remembers you. God remembers you and every promise that he has made to you. Take hope. Take hope today. God did it. God rescued his people and brought them into the promised land. And a few hundred years later, God sent his one and only son 
to, to bring about an even greater rescue and lead us into an even greater promised land. He hung on the cross, but God did not leave him on the cross. He went to the grave, but God did not leave him in the grave. God raised him from the dead and Jesus ascended into heaven, but he made this promise. He is going to come back. He is going to come back and make all things right. He is going to come back and judge the living and the dead. He is going to come back and rescue a people for himself. He is going to come back and make all things new. God did it then. Bethel, hear this today. God will do it again.